Hello everyone, I trust you must have been enriched and greatly enthused with the part 1 of this episode. You will even more be enriched in the second part. Welcome to part 2. So um, the 13 days is spent at Dubai, um, except the excitement of being in Dubai. What, uh, what other fun did you get from the COP experience? Well, gosh, I loved uh, riding the public transportation in Dubai. There was a wonderful um, train that went between our hotel and the expo grounds where COP was held. And I loved Ooh. public transit because it's so efficient um, from an energy standpoint. And it's also, you get to see regular people, you know, it's always good to, when you're traveling in a country to, you know, instead of just driving around in a car, like really interacting um, with public transit. And of course, this train goes right through downtown Dubai and has in views of these incredible towers, including the tallest tower in the world, the Burj Khalifa, out the window of the train. So very impressed with Dubai, very clean city, very low crime, very respectful people and uh people were very well dressed um fashionable and uh great malls the malls were everywhere because i apparently it's quite hot in dubai in the summer we were there in the winter and it was beautiful but when it's hot people spend time in the malls so we spent a lot of time hanging out in the malls and seeing the shops and um and talking about climate change and energy it was a dream it must have been a, a very exciting experience for you. I, I can't see that. So um, during the COP, uh, like you mentioned earlier, it has always been a, a discussion of renewables from the solar to the wind and geothermal and hydro. And now we have COP28 being known as the nuclear COP because a whole lot of the discussion was centered on nuclear energy. So how did this conversation go when you have to bring renewable and nuclear into the discussion, considering the fact that people are still a bit adverse to adoption of nuclear energy? Yes, these conversations take patience. And we, but I'm always surprised how much more people like nuclear than I expect. And we were able to hang out in this net zero nuclear booth in the green zone. That was like our home base. And we had speeches there and panels and then displays and the public would just come up and talk to us and say like, tell me about nuclear. And it was so fun because it was from people around the world. And generally we would ask, do you have a perspective about nuclear energy? And I think this is a magic question because it allows people to say what they know about nuclear energy and it allows us to listen and hear where they're coming from first before just starting to talk. And I think nuclear advocates accidentally do that quite a bit because people say, tell me about nuclear. And we say, it's so great. Here's all these things. And we don't really know if it's connecting with the audience. But when you ask people, when you ask the public, what do you think about nuclear? They can tell you where they're coming from and then you can start a conversation that way. 
And so that's what we did with hundreds of people in the green zone, just asking what they thought about nuclear. And I was surprised to learn that either they had a more positive opinion or many people had no opinion about nuclear, which I think is important, you know, and I generally just start with talking about fission and what that is and what uranium is and how it comes from two collapsing stars and starting it from a more cosmic and interesting science way than just hopping right into we make steam and spin a big turbine that creates electricity or, you know, medical isotopes or some of these more advanced ideas. Let's just talk about it from like, what's uranium? What is fission? What can we do with heat? And um, stay curious and and lighthearted with it because it takes many conversations and we know that we, we don't have to convince the world that nuclear is clean energy overnight. We have the patience, we have the time, we have the youth movement, we have the physics. So let's just listen and help people understand it on their own terms. Now, I, that's interesting. You seem to have um, engaged in a lot of advocacy activities when you were in Dubai. And from what you say, you're making the whole nuclear look a bit simplified. You're coming from the aspect of fishing and then you just do stars that come together. I'm sure people really paid a lot of attention to you and you must have succeeded in getting a whole lot of people to have positive opinions on nuclear energy. So as a nuclear advocate, while at COP28, what was the challenges you had to deal with? What were the major challenges you faced uh, trying to get people to appreciate the advantages of nuclear energy? Well, it really comes back to Jerry's question about financing. And the big question was, uh, can we get nuclear included in these green bond frameworks? Can we get nuclear included in these massive financing opportunities that think groups like the World Bank can get behind because right now it's excluded. Nuclear energy is not seen as clean energy in many of these circles, especially Europe. And so that was the challenge is we had to patiently but firmly say that nuclear is clean energy and it deserves investment. And I understand people's concern because they say, oh, well, if I invest in nuclear, it takes many years for nuclear to come online. But if we invest in wind and solar, we can have that carbon reduction now or something like that. It would be a better investment of our money. And I understand that. But thankfully, many think tanks, including the United States Department of Energy, is saying that we need renewables plus nuclear to phase down fossils. And you will notice in the final text from COP, it doesn't say phase out fossil fuels. It says phase down fossil fuels. So I think, and to phase out something, you have to phase it down first. And that was very intentional language. But in order to even phase down fossil fuels, the literature is very clear that we need renew all renewable energy and more of it and more nuclear energy 
working together to lower our reliance on fossil fuels. And so it was such an honor to be able to help explain that to people because most people, you know, this is not their area of expertise. And so we just be patient with them and try to understand how our energy systems work together. That's very uh, lovely to, to know. So at COP28, we had Nigeria have her own boots. We had Ghana join the pledge. Overall, what do you think of um, Africans participant at COP28? Whoa, the Africans at COP28 were smart, stylish, and on a mission. I mean, I... I saw so many Africans speak on panels. I saw oh. I saw so many Africans looking super fly. I was I saw so many Africans in prominent places and it was amazing to meet so many of them. Um and what can I say? Uh, Africa is leading the world in a lot of radiological sciences and you're leading in radiation medicine, leading the discussion on SMRs, obviously, and the whole world is listening. And I would, what I was impressed with the Africans is they were like, give us a better deal. You know, like the deal that US is giving us, or maybe some other countries who also have nuclear are giving you, they're like, give us a better deal. And I think that's smart because people want to compete for your business. And these are, when you're building these plants, they last a long time and they come with a lot of infrastructure. And so these should be negotiated. And I felt that Africans recognize their power, that you are growing countries that need a lot more power. Where's it gonna come from? And how can the benefits stay in the country? You know, how can, how, which country, which partnerships are going to bring the most community benefit to Ghana, to Nigeria, to Sierra Leone, to Kenya, to Rwanda, to South Africa, to Morocco, who signed on to the pledge, to Egypt, you know, who, who's going to get the best deal because the implications are big, you know, driving down the cost of energy and increasing our access to it, you know, that is, um, that can change the future. And I am so grateful for um, for the Africans I met. I, I have some notes about who I met. Um, I don't want to shout everyone out too hard, but, you know, Dennis from Kenya, um, Abu Bakar uh, and, Alfre- uh, and Umar uh, Farouk, both from Nigeria, I'm sure you know them. Um, Alfred Mbayo from Sierra Leone, Amanda Mbele from South Africa, also uh, Princey from South Africa, Robert Kiptu from Kenya. It was a pretty impressive bunch. And um, I look forward to meeting more, you know, nuclear professionals and nuclear advocates uh, from Africa as the movement continues to grow. I really feel so proud being an African right now, hearing you speak so highly of us at um, COP28. We hope to replicate much more better uh, um, outing in COP29. So COP29 is coming up. This is 2024 and um, the world will be trooping all out for it. So 
how are you preparing for COP29? Will you also be there? Are you going in a way more better capacity than you attended COP28? What difference will you be making in COP29? Well, I don't know if I'll be able to go to COP29, but I hope so. And I think all of us should be asking our government to send us and send us with blue zone passes so that we can talk to important people. And, uh, you know, we, you know, we were able to attend because of the generosity of this net zero nuclear group. And we don't think that they, that, that group, you know, had funding for this cop. We don't know if they have funding for next cop. So I think whether we go, you know, I would love for us all to be able to meet there and have the funding to do that. And I I can almost trust that like nuclear energy is headed in the right direction and that we'll have a little bit more funds to support nuclear advocates. I hope, you know, it feels like something big is happening in nuclear, but what I would like to see, and I think what we can do right now to make COP29 go well, is we have to sell more nuclear reactors around the world. And I know you and I can't take out our checkbooks and write a check for a, a billion dollars, but we need to push these conversations forward because we have this agreement to triple nuclear energy. And if in the year from COP28 to COP29, 50 new nuclear plants are announced, well, that's going to make nuclear a headline at COP29. If nothing happens between COP28 and 29, people are going to say, ah, nuclear, those people can't deliver. Those people can't get deals done. And I think that's the rumor about nuclear is that we just talk too much and we don't actually build things. And I think that's a fair criticism, you know, like I came from solar energy. I worked in solar for 13 years. I built 7,300 solar power systems. You know, and obviously they're a lot smaller and all of them together aren't even close to a nuclear power plant, but they were on different properties. So I built 7000 power plants, you know, in 13 years. And I hope that we can bring some of that spirit to nuclear again, because we were building quite a bit of nuclear around the world in like 1988. There was like hundreds of nuclear power plants under construction around the world. And we need to get back to that. So I would continue to put pressure on your government to announce more nuclear. And that's what I'm doing in the United States. The government can only do so much in the United States because the electricity grid is owned by private companies. So we have to put pressure on private companies too to agree to buy nuclear energy, agree to build nuclear energy. We have to put pressure on the public to understand this better. So it's really like all of that advocacy work, I think we have an opportunity to do it right now and win a more significant place at COP29 and beyond. I think we'll be there every year from here on out. That's uh, that's interesting to know. Um, really, I, I can see your hands raised. You could drop your questions on the chat box and during the Q&A, we will attend to your question. And I am sure Ryan has a, a good answer for whatever concerns you have. So far, so good. Ryan, you've been a wonderful guest from, from educating and sharing your experience at COP29. Uh, we've seen you talk so much about your transition 
from the solar industry into the nuclear industry. And you are also so much of um, a nuclear advocate. I've seen a whole lot of your videos on the internet from LinkedIn to Twitter with Generation Atomic talking about how so much we could benefit from nuclear energy. So I want to ask, how did the transition happen? What was the point that you realized that, okay, I am better off at nuclear than at solar? At what point do you think, okay, I think nuclear had much more to offer? Considering 13 years, you've made so much career progress. And in nuclear, you you are basically focused way, way much more on advocacy. So what, what was the idea beyond, uh, behind the transition? Well, I think I just wanted a new challenge at the end of the day. I felt like I had accomplished a lot in my solar career and I wanted to continue to grow. And I saw an opportunity from an entrepreneurial standpoint to bring some of the things that renewables does well and bring that into nuclear. So really it was money motivated because I, and I haven't made much money in nuclear yet, but I have ideas to, to help companies sell more nuclear reactors because you know, wind and solar, they don't have a sales problem. They have many, many sold projects. They have a delivery project problem in nuclear. We, we don't, we have a sales problem. We don't have enough sold jobs in the pipeline to scale our workforce. So I see an opportunity to, to make money in nuclear, but once I got into nuclear and after I had quit my job in solar, I realized, oh, we need a lot of advocacy right now. People don't know what this technology is. We need to update some of the laws to allow for, um, you know, a, a more economic rollout of nuclear. We got to make nuclear much, much, much cheaper, much cheaper, or else we're not going to get off fossil fuels. And at the end of the day, I realized that 100% renewables was not enough to power a industrialized society. And therefore we would be stuck on fossils forever unless we got into nuclear. So I try not to shy away from making money. I think that's an important part of being alive right now. And But I also do it because I'm very concerned with the climate crisis and the affordability crisis. And I, I know that nuclear can help and the United States used to build nuclear for very cheap. The cheapest nuclear in the world was built in 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 Wisconsin, United States in 1974. So that was 50 years ago. We can do it again. And I'm here to help with that. All right. I, I love I must appreciate your honesty for saying uh, you left the solar industry because you saw money in the nuclear industry. <laughs> Unfortunately, oh. uh, the money <laughs> isn't coming yet, but I hope with time it will begin to roll all in. So thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate your attendance, your, your willingness to share your knowledge and insights with us from Crop 28 to your personal experiences. We really very much appreciate Let's see if we can take one or two questions from the attendance and then we'll wrap it all up. Um, Willie, can you hear me? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jardine. And thank you, Rian, for a very, very clear uh, message. 
um, pity that uh, we lost um, our chief host along the line, uh, Jeremiah. Uh, Willie Shambala is my name. I'm from Nigeria. Um, I have worked with uh, the government of Nigeria for at least 25 years. I, indeed, I work with the National Center for Technology Management, an agency under the National Atomic Energy Commission in Nigeria. So we are in charge of uh, whatever you would like to describe as the nuclear uh, technology know-how in Nigeria. Thank you very much, uh, Ryan, once again. Uh, two quick questions for me. Post COP28, what are the chances for African countries? Considering fine, fine, you mentioned the financing gap or the financing option. What about the technology gap? How do we fill that up quickly? Renewable energy, fine, no problems. I, most of us have been warming up to that for the past uh, over 25 years. But nuclear option, what, how do we fill that gap, the technology gap? What can we do very quickly? You mentioned it, that 2050 is just about 26 years away. How can African countries fill that technology gap? Because it's no longer sufficient for you to import the technology. You have to be able to maintain the technology. Yeah. For me, it's the biggest challenge. I see, at, you mentioned it also, that just about 25 countries signed up to uh, uh, that commitment. So I'm particularly happy that uh, uh, nuclear option is coming on board and much more centrally. But uh, if wishes were horses in England, they would tell you that beggars will write. So what do you think? What What's advice for African countries? Thank you very much, uh, Rian. And thanks yeah. once again, uh, uh, Geraldine and uh, <laughs> Jeremiah. For, Thank for you this. very much, really. So over to you, Ryan. Well, Willie, thank you for your public service to Nigeria and, and to the world. I have a lot of respect for public servants uh, because, because people who care work on these things for the betterment of everyone. And so you have my respect. The We've got to make nuclear energy incredibly affordable. And I anything else is not good enough. And so I think it starts with the fuel cycle you may want to look up, there was an announcement at COP about something called the Sapporo 5. And that was the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Sweden, and Japan coming together to create new fuel enrichment capacity. And when I was talking to Africans at COP, they were saying that they were having a hard time getting radioactive materials from some countries. And so this is obviously a problem, right? And we can't really talk about nuclear reactors without talking about the fuel. So hopefully we start making more fuel and more different types of fuel. I like low enriched uranium fuel. I like very simple nuclear reactors, you know? And so I think if we can get African countries on a line with a reliable fuel source that's easy to work with, there are new reactors coming out that are quite simple. And I would continue to negotiate very aggressively with any country that you want to do business with and keep keep looking for indigenous African technology, because we know that Africans can build nuclear reactors. We know it. And we know that the West has made nuclear energy too complicated for no reason. So I would love to see some of the African countries come together and make an indigenous design 
for a 20 to 50 megawatt reactor that works on very simple fuel that you can get from many countries around the world and drive down the cost of electricity and increase energy access to to Africans and show the world how it's done because no one has figured this out yet. So why not? Why not Africa? Yeah, speaking of um, indigenous African technology, um, South Africa is uh, working on a design of small modular reactors that can easily be adaptable to remote African villages. So yeah, Africa, a lot of African countries and research institutions are putting in the work to have indigenous technologies so that, you know, when it is indigenous, you, you have your environment at heart, you have your your financial capacity at heart. You it's easier to come up with something that can be adopted into your locality. So um the next person with hands raised is Kezaya. Kezaya, can you hear me? You can unmute and ask your question. Yes. So um thank you so much, Mr. Ryan, for this very insightful discussion. I have learned so much. I have a question. In Nigeria, or should I say Africa, we are increasingly becoming a big part of the nuclear energy conversation, and um, especially in um, towards nuclear advocacy. So, um, my question is, um, what advice do you have for people like us who are very keen on bringing nuclear energy to our country because of the nuclear energy crisis? I mean. In Nigeria, we have a population of over 200 million and more than 40% of these people live in darkness. Like we, our energy problems are really, really great. And we are looking at a country where we have a diversified energy mix with nuclear playing a very big role in that, you know, because it's a base load energy. So as nuclear advocates, what advice do you have for us? Like, how can we become... Um, a better part of the conversation, the nuclear energy conversation. How can we go from just talking to actually doing? How can we help inform policy um, decisions? You know, you're, a, you're, you're an energy uh, policy expert and researcher. So what can we do, like, you know, to drive this forward, to do something really um, big that can help us go from where we are to where we hope to be in the future? We... Um, also, we um, signed a uh, deal with uh, Rosatom. I believe you should know that in 2015 to uh, collaborate on or to cooperate on uh, nuclear power um, applications in Nigeria. But there's this sort of silence around it. So what can we do, we nuclear advocates, about that? Thank you for that question. And it, it's a question that I struggle with myself. This. This opportunity is so great. And as you said, people are living in darkness, you know, like people are being harmed by the fossil fuels that we need to live. Like this is an unacceptable situation and it needs to improve immediately. So I appreciate the urgency of your comment. For me, my feeling is that nuclear advocacy needs to transcend technology and we need to become a philosophical and aesthetic movement you know we need to use every available resource and that includes art that includes philosophies about how we can improve the world and 
I think that nuclear energy can be a part of almost every discussion. I think everyone on this call knows that, right? Because energy is life. <laughs> and without energy, you know, everything just becomes much harder and more expensive and less fun. So how do we how do we infiltrate these bigger conversations and help our elected leaders understand the opportunity? And I think at the end of the day, money helps. And if we can talk about driving down the cost of energy with nuclear and what that could do for our economies and how it can be beautiful at the same time and preserve our wild spaces and make all of these environmental dreams come true at the same time as our economic dreams, at the same time as our you know, development dreams, then I know it sounds unrealistic, but the technology that we have is can actually do that. You know, it is I call it cheat code energy. You know, nuclear fission is like a cheat code. It's so as we know, it's so much more efficient than any other energy we've ever found. So leaning into that, finding confidence in ourselves and know that we're we're not crazy here. We're advocating for a world-changing technology and lean into that conviction when we're talking to people. And of course we should talk to powerful people, but we should also talk to regular people because that has an effect. And the more truth that we can spread right now, I know it's a lot to ask from the few people who even know about what we're talking about, but I know that more help is coming and so if we can just continue to pass this knowledge on and what we're doing here is i think the most important thing we can be doing and there are more young people that want to learn about it because young people deserve a meaningful future that we can be excited about and and nuclear energy plays a role so if we can keep that excitement and opportunity and think of it like an economic opportunity and pitch it like that I think that puts us in a very good position. I just want to thank you for answering the question in a very concise and comprehensive way. Thank you so much, Mr. Ryan. Thank you, Kaziya. Yes. Um, we have Levos. Sorry if I am wrong with the pronunciation. Your hands is raised. Can we hear you out? Uh, thank you, Geraldine and Ryan, for such a rich presentation. Though I joined the conversation late. I was highly impressed about your comments on radiation safety and other aspects of nuclear. I'm coming from the medical background. And talking about nuclear, oftentimes, even within the medical community, there still, still exists a lot of uh, misconceptions anytime the word nuclear is mentioned. How do we really improve conversation around this? Because just like you rightly noted, Energy drives the wheel of development. But when we talk about nuclear, the nuclear power aspect and the non-power aspect, like for those of us in the medical application, other industrial applications, how do we really demystify most of this actually in terms of conversation to the relevant stakeholders? And for us in Africa, like you rightly noted, Africa is a richly young population. In terms of policy formulation and all this, how can we ensure more young people involvement in policy making along this line? Thank you very much. Well, thank you uh, for your service to uh, science and medicine. 
And for having these conversations, I know it can be exhausting to have these conversations over and over and over again. And that is, that is, that's what we signed up for as nuclear advocates. I don't know the answer to your question. Um, I think about it a lot. How do we do it? I, my thing is, it's got to be more interesting and easier to understand. I think sometimes radiation safety professionals get very into the science of it. And I can't understand that person because I, I have a limited science and technology background. Uh, so I, I think I try to encourage science communicators to speak more simply and smile more and ask their interests and somehow make it interesting to them. You know, because once they're interested in it, your job is done. Once someone gets into nuclear, you know how it is. Like, they just, they're like, oh, can you believe it? And they start Googling around on the internet and all of a sudden they're totally obsessed with nuclear. But the other implication, I think, for the medical community is, and maybe all communities, is if reward outweighs risk, things happen. If we see that the reward of nuclear medicine or nuclear energy or nuclear technology is greater than the risk and society understands that, that's when the legislators start to move. That's when the money starts to move. And we just need to make that clear that the reward greatly outweighs the risk and I think people say that humans aren't very good at understanding risk. Well, that's our job to communicate clearly and simply and respect other people by speaking simply. I don't I feel like sometimes we think we're respecting people by saying really big words, but I find that's disrespectful because I can't understand it. <laughs> you know, like so it makes me feel stupid and no one wants to feel stupid. People want to feel smart. And they want it to have their own ideas. So if we can make it their own idea, that's another big trick in American sales is make it their idea to move forward. And then maybe you get more buy-in. So those are just some some thoughts I, I've been nurturing. Thank you so much, Ryan. I'm very, very grateful. You just nailed it, actually. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. Let's do it together. And it, we And it's good that we come together as a group and talk about this because if you're just doing it by yourself, it can be very, I think it's impossible to do it by yourself. We have to come together and say like, hey, it's okay and keep it positive. Because as soon as we become negative, people don't wanna to talk to negative people. People wanna to talk to positive, optimistic people with a plan. And we've gotta be the people with the plan right now because we do, we have the best plan and we can be excited about that and we can share it but we can also be, you know, serious and, and professionals in the process. Um, thank you very much, Ryan. Um, just like Philbus said, you nailed it on the head. Make the communication as simple as possible and as interesting as it can be and also smile more. You know, when you talked about nuclear, uh, the way you talked about it, you said fishing and I mean, I am. <laughs> I'm a nuclear physicist, but... You made it so simple to me that I'm like, okay, this thing is actually way more interesting that I tell people. 
and it's good if um, a whole lot of communication uh, studies could even be done by nuclear communicators, by even nuclear scientists. It makes it easier to, to share the message because in communication where there is no understanding, then it's not communication. It's a one-way uh, monologue. We have uh, a question from the chat box and I will read. Will you say from the onset of the first COP to the last one just held, there have been lots of agreements, signatories, and understandings. Are they kept or just talk, talk, no commitment? This is from Ogu Chibike Osinachi. Ogu, this is a great question. And, you know, as you know, they're not binding agreements. You know, they're not laws. There's no penalties. And so people criticize COP that it's just a bunch of talking and nothing gets done. But I gotta say, there were some very big politicians there, and there was a lot of influential people there. And politicians want to get elected, and politicians are elected by us. So if our politicians don't do what they say they're gonna do, then they're not gonna have a job. And we have to hold our legislators and elected public officials accountable. And if they don't do it, you're fired, <laughs> you know? And so I think the, the it's kind of on us to enforce ourselves, you know, and call out leaders who are like, hey, we're not following the, what we signed. And that's been very effective for me in the United States because in the three months since COP, I've gotten to come back to the United States and talk to lots of leaders and say, hey, you know, we just signed this triple pledge, right? What are you doing about it? You know, and so, you know, we've got to be the change. Um, and I, it, it will be exciting to see where we take it from here. That, that's interesting. Yeah. The only problem is, I don't know if we can apply this in, in Africa, in Nigeria, because uh, we don't sack our leaders. <laughs> we have an issue of political will here. Um, and leadership, it's, uh, we are still trying to get it right in terms of leadership. So usually when our leaders go to make those pledges and come back, we just clap for them and pray they, they put, <laughs> <laughs> put it to action. Thank you very much, Ryan, for, for being on this podcast. Thank you for the, the, your attendance. It's, it's been quite an interesting and um, I, I really very much appreciate your willingness and openness to share your experiences and insights. So I'll be handing over to Jerry to round everything up. While Jerry's figuring out the mute, I just want to say, you know, okay. I'm perhaps a little bit ignorant on um, Nigerian political culture. Um, but no matter what type of government we have, you know, our leaders represent us. And we're here trying to make this change. So, you know, they, they will reflect us in time and we'll all work together to that end. Thank you so much for uh, turning up in this episode of the AfriNuke podcast. And everyone, thank you for tuning in. Conversations like this should continue so that uh, we will up the ante and also bring this amazing technology and someday in the future we'll say yes we did it and also for our greater good in the global community that we have also contributed to decarbonizing our globe our planet a better place to live in so ryan i want to say a very big thank you uh, it's been really informative uh, talking with you and i wonder if you have any 
parting words to add an icing to what you have been saying you've been saying quite a lot but i wonder if you have any kind of uh, quotes or conclusive statement you want to make so that we will hold it at that and uh, draw the curtain well let me think a final thought my final thought is that we are the ones that we are waiting for no one is going to do this for us it's actually us and while that is both a tall order it's also well within our capacity to do this and we must find a cooperative international coalition to do this together and we can use science and technology to save the world and I look forward to doing that with you all for the rest of my life. So thank you. Thank you so much, Ryan. And uh, thank you very much. And have a great day ahead, everybody.